As you're taking your seats, let me invite you to grab your Bible and open up to the book of Acts, chapter 12. As we, uh, we open up to the book of Acts there, this is a kind of bittersweet morning. We're closing off our first study through the book of Acts. We've been marching through the book of Acts this ministry year, and we're going to take a break over the summer. And this is our final message until September in the book of Acts. So uh, I hope that you've been encouraged and blessed the way I have by God's word in this study through Acts. It has really been refining for me. It has been shaping me. And God has used it in so many ways in my own life to shake me up and to push me further and further in my walk with him, uh, specifically when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being more and more intentional about that. I, I really feel a great deal of conviction about that in my own heart, and I believe that God has wanted to shape us as a church to make sure that we are a church that is a, a vehicle of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why we're, we're doing the series that we're doing following this. You got that postcard there. We wanna, you know, we've been talking so much about getting out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and we're, we're trusting, and we're hearing, by the way, that I could tell you story after story of people who have come up and shared about doing just that and seeing God work as they take the steps of faith uh, to do that. And God is working, and I just wanna encourage you with that. I, I have so many un- unbelievable stories about uh, God really using people. And more than that, many of you have experienced this too, of for the first time getting out of your comfort zone and sharing Christ with somebody. And just the joy that that brings and the catalyst that that is to further evangelistic efforts is, is instrumental. So I wanna encourage you. We wanna create some on-ramps for people. Maybe you're sharing the gospel with. Maybe you've been faithfully doing that, or maybe you're still looking to We want you to be able to bring them into the church. We've designed this series specifically to answer some of life's most important questions. And we believe the Bible has those answers. And so we want to encourage you, not next week. We have a guest preacher coming in next week, uh, Trevor Peacock from um, Harvest Bible Chapel, Calgary. You're not going to want to miss that. Um, But the week after that, we're going to kick off this series, Reasons We Believe. And we pray that it will be a blessing to you. But before we get there, we're wrapping up our study in the book of Acts And this is a really fascinating portion of the book of Acts. This is Luke closing off really the second section in this letter that he's written. And it wraps up in a really kind of tidy way and a distinct way this section that has focused on the ministry primarily to Jerusalem. And it transitions to the nations now, moving outwards beyond Jerusalem into the Gentile communities. There is a massive transition that's going to take place in chapter 13 from the ministry primarily of the Apostle Peter to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who is the Apostle to the Gentiles. But before that transition takes place, there seems to be almost an abrupt ending to this section at the end of chapter 12, and it does this kind of abrupt ending, there's this abrupt ending that seems uh, very strange and, and maybe a little bit odd. It ends with the death of Herod. But when we study it, I think you'll find that it's actually not very strange at all. In fact, it's quite fitting that God ends this section this way. You see, in chapter 12, the church is experiencing the greatest human enemy they've ever experienced up to this point. The church is young, they're flourishing, there's been a season of peace and reprieve from the persecution that was begun after the death of Stephen. But now the peacetime is shattered. And Herod has launched an assault against the church of Jesus Christ, and he is attacking with great vengeance, and he's going primarily after the leadership of the church. It's always interesting to see that whenever God can take down a leader of the church, oftentimes the church crumbles. 
But here, as we've seen, he's gone after James and he's killed him at the beginning of chapter one and now he's gone after Peter and he's imprisoned Peter and, and the same fate as James experienced was intended for Peter but God miraculously, supernaturally broke him out of prison. This chapter here with Herod is really, really setting the stage for what, what looked like the greatest tragedy in the life of the church, destruction of the church, the dismantling of the church. But what we see instead is that God wants to highlight that so he can show us that though the greatest power and the greatest enemy that comes against the church is real, it is no match for God. And instead of seeing the destruction of the church, we see the triumph of Christianity. We see the church pressing on, moving forward. And what seems to be a strange story about a bizarre death of this man is actually a powerful statement of God, a statement of victory, a statement of strength, and a statement of progress for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the face of the greatest attack the church sees, there is instead of halting the work of God, there is the advancement of the work of God. That opposition does not stop God from moving forward, it becomes an opportunity and a platform for greater and greater progress. And that's important because the call that we've been focusing on for the church, the same call for the early church is the call for us today, that is to get out with the gospel to continue to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have been hammering that theme over the past six weeks. It is time to get out. It is time to take the gospel to the nations. And the good news is, is that God fuels that call. And he does so in this text specifically by the knowledge, listen, the knowledge that our God is stronger. Our God is stronger than any other opposition that may come against us. There is nothing that can deter him. And that is the big idea here that God is driving home by the power of the Holy Spirit through the pen of Luke. And so I want to just draw out three things. The first is this, that because our God is stronger, no plan can succeed against us. No plan can succeed against us. We'll back up a little bit and, and just revisit a bit of the context. Look at verse 17 with me of chapter 12. It says, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Remember where we are in this story. Peter had just been imprisoned, as we've already said, and he's been miraculously set free. An angel of the Lord has led him out of prison. This was no small feat. Peter begins to knock at the gate where all these Christians are gathered and they're having this massive prayer meeting and we know what they're praying. They're praying, God, get Peter out of prison. Release him from prison. God, set him free. And all of a sudden comes this knock at the gate and, and poor Rhoda runs to the, the gate and she, in her joy, hears the voice of Peter and instead of opening the gate, she runs back to let everybody know. She bursts in this prayer meeting. She says, everybody, you have to listen, pay attention. Peter's out front, the one we've been praying for. He, he's here, he's here right now. And instead of jumping with joy, they look at her and they say, you are out of your mind. Eventually, they listen to her and as they go to the gates, they open it up and they see him. Verse 16 tells us they were absolutely amazed and he begins to describe to them the powerful hand of God that was at work, setting him free, releasing him from prison. 
And while Peter is explaining what happened, you can imagine what's happening with Herod and what's happening with these soldiers. Herod is trying to figure out how his plan had been utterly derailed. He had concocted this masterful plan. He wanted the praise of the people. And so just like the people rejoiced in him killing James, he wanted Peter to experience the same fate. This would certainly please the people. On that very night, verse 6 tells us, the night when Herod was going to put him to death, his plans were utterly destroyed and derailed. And I love what verse 18 says. It says, Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance amongst the soldiers over whom over what excuse me, had become of Peter. I love how the Bible kind of understates things sometimes or has a way of phrasing things in such a unique way. And just, I, that phrase is, is really neat, isn't it? The, that, there's no little disturbance. That's, uh, that's Luke's way of saying there was total and complete chaos, right? There's no little disturbance. This was such a massive ordeal Right, This whole plan was designed to prevent Peter from escaping. That was the whole point. Remember, he had stationed 16 guards to watch over Peter so this very thing wouldn't happen. I mean, he's planned this out, and in fact, not only does he have 16 guards, he's chained Peter up between two guards. And all of a sudden, here goes Herod, and he wants to examine what's taking place. Look at verse 19. It says, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. I imagine there was no little disturbance. You see, these soldiers understood. They understood what their fate would be if Peter was not found. They knew, according to Roman law, that they would receive the same punishment that the imprisoner who, who escaped would receive. They were guilty of letting him free, of letting him go. So they knew that because Peter was supposed to be put to death, that they would face certain death because of his escape. And, and the massive confusion and chaos that would have ensued, you can imagine the conversations as they know Herod is coming down to confront them, to examine them. All of these 16 guards, puzzled, confused, petrified for their life. What, what happened? I mean, did, did you see him? I mean, who's going to tell Herod how he got away? I'm not telling him. You tell him. Hey, you were chained to him, man. You tell him. It's crazy. Can you imagine the conversation when Herod showed up? Um, can somebody please explain to me how Peter got out of the prison, how he made his way past 16 guards and got out of these chains? Can you, can you imagine what these guards are saying? Well, he was here, and then he wasn't here. He was right there, and he disappeared. We didn't even wake up. He was just gone, and, and we don't understand how this has happened right, right now. Like we're, we're confused. We're just as confused as, as you, and maybe they were pleading with Herod, saying, look, there must be some supernatural explanation to this. I mean, what else would make sense? What else would make sense? These guys have no clue how this happened. Maybe they pleaded and said, maybe the God of Peter is a God that we shouldn't be messing with. Maybe, maybe there's something real to his faith that we need to be aware of. Maybe, maybe... Maybe this God, maybe this God is real. And either way, what we see is that Herod put them to death. He doesn't believe them, or at least, listen, or at least he doesn't care. He doesn't care what their excuse is. He doesn't care what the answer is. He orders their death. Maybe he suspected that there was some kind of a plot. Maybe he suspected that the guards had been bribed. 
Maybe he simply thought that their answer was ludicrous and he wanted to make a public statement. I find it interesting that so often people are just like Herod. Don't you find that? That they come up with all kinds of reasons to rationalize the supernatural, to rationalize the miraculous, to explain away uh, some clear evidences of God. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can do that too. Rather than realizing the truth, they continue to resist. God's people are amazed and encouraged in the very same moment God's enemies are angered and frustrated. And this is just like our God. Our God uses these divine supernatural aspects of the way he works to encourage our hearts and to frustrate the plans of our enemies. In fact, all throughout scripture, we see that no plan can succeed against our God. Listen to what Psalm 33 verse 10 says. It says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Job's friends weren't good for much in terms of their counsel, but they did get a few things right. Job 5, 12-13, his friend Eliphaz says this, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. All of man's plans are subject to the sovereignty of God. Maybe for you that that provokes some questions though. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, really, is that really true? That God is really in charge of all things and he's in control of all things? And maybe you're thinking something like this, and why does it appear that the plans of man often succeed against the plans of God? Why does it seem like the church isn't succeeding the way it should? I I mean, tell this truth, Ian, to the persecuted church around the world. Tell that to somebody who doesn't experience the answers to their prayers. Tell that to the person who's been pleading with God to save their their child for the last 20 years and they're not seeing any fruit. Tell that to the person who's been asking God to change their circumstances and, and, and change their health and hasn't experienced these answers. Tell that to the person who didn't get miraculously rescued, right? Did you notice last week we rightly focused a lot on, on Peter, but we didn't focus at all on James really, did we? I mean, think about that for a second. Think about that contrast. Peter gets released and James loses his head? Is God still sovereign? Do you think people prayed for the escape and the rescue of, of James? I do. And yet, what we see is that God answered those prayers in one way. In one way, he set Peter free. And in another way, it appeared that he didn't answer, or at least he didn't answer in the way that people expected. It's easy to say to Peter that no plan can succeed against us. He's the one out of prison. But, but in James's case, we see no obvious evidence of any kind of triumph, of, of victory, of God moving in power. It seems like it's defeat, and so often that's the way it feels in the Christian life. We, we don't feel like God is answering. We don't see God answering, and we, we're left asking the why questions. Don't you find that often in the Christian life? We want to know why. Why, God, did you allow this? Why aren't you fixing this situation? Why did you allow these circumstances? Lord, why, why did you allow my finances to dry up? Why am I not effective as, a, as an evangelist? Why aren't you saving my children? I mean, why, why? We always want to know the why, and so often God doesn't give us the answers to the why. Instead, God often, God often points us to the who. He wants to answer the question, who? Who are you praying to? Who are you worshiping? 
And I think the greatest example of this is Job. And we've talked about Job a lot. Job is a picture of, of what it looks like to suffer in life. And, and by the way, to suffer when he's righteous, when he didn't deserve it. It wasn't a result of his sin like his friends thought. It wasn't a result of his sin like his wife thought. Just curse God and die, right? He's looking, he loses everything in his life. He loses his wealth. He loses his kids. I mean, he loses his health. And God leaves him with his wife. He's like, you took everything, God, and you left me with this. She tells him to curse God and die. And what's so fascinating is that Job never gets the answer to the question, why? And he's sitting there scraping the boils on, of his, on his flesh with shards of pottery has no clue why he's suffering, and in the end, you wanna know what his answer is? God looks at him and he says, I'm not gonna tell you why, but I'm gonna tell you who. And he reveals to him just this amazing, just array of his character, and here's who I am, and here's my power, and here's what I've done, and here's the one that you say you trust, now do you? See, but in our fast-moving age, we want immediate evidence to feel that the sacrifices that we have made are worthwhile, to feel like it's worth it, But the truth is, listen church, that we may not get that evidence until we get to heaven. And when we get there and he reveals to us these answers, it will all make sense and it will be all the more glorious. We must learn to leave it to God, to let his sovereignty over a situation be expressed in the best way he decides. There's a much larger picture that he sees and that we cannot, and it requires that we be a a people who trust God in the good times and the bad. When we don't know the answer to the why, we can trust the who. What's most important is that like Peter and James, we remain faithful and obedient to God regardless of the outcome of the crisis that we face. Whatever experience God's providence permits us to go through, our primary commitment should be to obedience, that we will remain faithful to God no matter what. I love that the picture of the early church, listen, in the face of all the threats, in the face of all the persecution, in the face of all the unknown, in all the crises, all of these things pushed the church, listen, not to disobedience and not to pulling away, but to a greater commitment to proclaiming the gospel. Peter saw a wonderful deliverance through the intervention of God while James faced death for Jesus Christ. But the early Christians persevered in obedience, knowing that if God is sovereign, he would use their obedience to win a great victory for the kingdom. What we know for certain is this, that man's plans will not ultimately succeed in defeating deterring or derailing God's plan. All of man's plans are subservient to God's plan. Satan's schemes will ultimately fail. Man's plans will only serve to accomplish God's greater plans. And though that may be painful in the moment, it does not make it untrue. Even when we can't see it, we persevere in patience and obedience and confidence. And our confidence, church, is this, that though we're facing strong opponents, our God is stronger. No plan can succeed against us because our God is stronger. And because our God is stronger, secondly, notice this, no person can stand against us. No person can stand against us. And here we see that Herod rushes to Caesarea. We've looked a little bit at Caesarea before in previous weeks. Caesarea was a maritime town. It was a port city. And Herod flees here, and he does so to put out another political fire. Look at verse 
20, he says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So he rushes to Caesarea here to put out a political fire. Apparently in in, uh, Tyre and Sidon, they were experiencing worse famine conditions than those that were being experienced in Herod's kingdom. Remember that uh, Agabus had prophesied that there would be a famine across the land and here we're seeing that that's exactly what's been taking place. So the people find themselves out of favor with Herod, but at the same time, they're dependent upon Herod to provide food for them in this great time of need, during this great famine. And so they orchestrate this public festival, and uh, they're attempting to win back the favor of Herod, so they ask him uh, through Blastus, his his servant, they gain a hearing with him, and they ask him to come and make a public appearance and make a public speech Now, what's interesting is that Josephus, the Jewish historian, he writes about this very occasion, and he talks about it from a a secular perspective, from definitely a secular Jewish perspective, but he, he writes about this, which is very helpful, listen, because if you didn't know, the Bible is true, it's absolutely unequivocally true, it is historically accurate, and I love, I love when we have secular sources that come alongside the Bible, and they affirm and validate for us the events that have taken place in Scripture. And so Josephus records this event and he actually embellishes it a little bit. He adds a little bit more color, but it helps us get a better picture of what's going on. It also just gives us some good perspective. Now, chronologically speaking, in terms of the time frame, this event here, Herod's death, this really gruesome death, occurred nearly a year after Peter was released from prison after God had miraculously set him free. So a whole year has gone by, but Luke, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to tie these two events together. He wants us to see that there is significance here, and we need to pay attention to that. According to Luke, Herod was wearing, look at verse 21, his royal robes. He comes out and he he wears these royal robes and he puts himself on display for all the people. And Josephus, he adds a little bit of color for us and he says this, he says that he wore a garment made wholly of silver which shone in a surprising manner when the rays of the sun touched it. So here he is, he's walking out in this silver gown. It's covering him and every time he moves, the sun hits it and it begins to blind the eyes of the people. It's this pompous act, this pompous outfit He's highlighting his power. He's highlighting his position. And as we'll see, he's highlighting his glory. And Luke says that Herod's punishment was because he did not praise God when the flatterers began to shout that it was the voice of a God. And just imagine the scene. Here is Herod and he's standing up before the people and he begins to give this speech and all of a sudden everybody around him begins to shout with one unified voice. It's the voice of a God, not of a man. It's the voice of a God, not of a man. And you can see everybody rallied to this cry. 
Josephus affirms that that's exactly what was happening. They were, they were telling him, we, we thought you were a mere mortal, but now we realize that you are more than a mortal. You are a deity. And Luke tells us here that the problem with this whole picture is that he did not give God the glory he stole the glory for himself. And Josephus, he adds to this picture and he says that the reason he was struck down was because he did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. He stole from God glory that was his alone. He tried to receive the praise that, was pra- that was, should have been for God alone. And though Luke does not tell us the exact cause of the death, it gives us uh, the picture of the supernatural aspect of it. What was happening was that an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus says that he had a violent abdominal pain and died five days later. That on the spot as he's receiving the praise, there's a whole backstory to it, but all of a sudden he's seized with unbearable pain in his stomach. And we can reconcile the two because we can look at Luke's account and say that immediately at that moment he was struck. Whatever God struck him with was the very thing that led to his death, Josephus records, five days later. Some scholars suggest that it may have been through infection by intestinal roundworms, but the scripture is not clear and that really doesn't matter. What we know and what we believe is that the word of God is true and that God supernaturally struck him down, the angel of the Lord. There's such irony here too, by the way, for the man who was glorious on the outside was rotting of worms on the inside. And this is a statement, you have to see this, of God's power over every human authority, over every human person. God rules and God reigns. Herod is not the true king. Herod is not the final authority. Herod does not possess unquestioned power. God does. And we see that here because the angel of the Lord, he responds to this and he strikes him down. It's interesting that the angel of the Lord is talked about twice in this chapter and both times he strikes. Do you notice that? The first time he strikes Peter and wakes him up. The second time he strikes Herod and kills him. And you see, don't don't miss the picture there. God has the power, listen, to set free and to destroy his enemies. He sets free his children. He can destroy his enemies just like that. He's in absolute control. Reminded me, as I studied through this this week, of an account in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 32. It records uh, the account of a, an Assyrian king named Sennacherib. And Sennacherib was a, a vicious monster of a man. And the Assyrian army was the greatest army known to man at the time. And they steamrolled across the known world, conquering nation after nation, destroying them, leaving towns and villages and cities in rubble. The whole world feared the Assyrian army. They trembled in fear. And this Assyrian king, Sennacherib, he came and he surrounded Judah. He besieged them, wanting them to come out and to to give up before he destroyed their entire city. And he mocked them. He looked at them and he said, who do you think you are that you can come against me? Don't you see my power? Don't you see my might? 
And Hezekiah, who was king at the time, he said these words to the people of God. I love this. It's so instructive for our hearts in the midst of of fear, in the midst of opposition. Listen to this. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And and here's what we ought to do. And the people took confidence for the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So are you kidding me? That guy's got an arm of flesh. His army is an army of flesh. We serve the God Almighty. The God of angel armies is on our side. I mean, there's nobody who can come against us if God is on our side. Don't you love that? I mean, isn't that truth true for us today? Don't we embrace that truth that God is on our side? No person can stand against us if God is on our side. But I love this because he's breathing courage into the people, reminding them of the strength and power of God. And then Sennacherib comes back and he tries to undo that. He tries to to erase that confidence in God. And he says a whole bunch of nonsense to them. He says, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you? Oh, how many people feel misled about the power and strength of God. Are they not misleading you and and that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem? Before one altar you shall worship, and on it you shall burn your sacrifices. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Can you just just imagine the fear that that would strike in the hearts of these people who are besieged? I mean, they knew, they knew what this king had done. They knew how vicious he was. They seen and heard reports of the slaughter. He says, who among all the gods of those nations that my father devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? What pompous arrogance. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? 2 Kings gives us some additional detail, but listen to this. You want to know how powerful our God is? Here is the greatest king the earth has ever seen, the most powerful army the earth has ever known at the time. It says in verse 20, then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. They turned to the only place they could. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. Second Kings tells us this, that on that day, the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrians, utterly wiped them out. One angel, how many angels does God have? One angel takes out 185,000 men. And if that's not bad enough, so he returned with shame of face to his own land. Listen, shame is all God's opponents will experience in the end. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. 
So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the, land, from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. I mean, how powerful is our God? How mighty is our God? This is an unbelievable picture of the power of our God. No person can stand against us if our God is with us and if our God is for us, which he is. And the lesson, by the way, of Herod's death was not lost on those who were present. Josephus makes it very clear that they understood that what Herod had done was an assault and an affront against God himself, that he was being punished for his wickedness. And here's what they understood. Listen, that no mere mortal dare take the glory that is due to God alone. Herod did that, and God struck him down. Listen, anyone, anyone who lives their life stealing glory from God will ultimately face the same fate as Herod. They will be struck down. Those who do not turn and give glory to God in the end, we'll meet a fate like Herod's. And don't miss this, don't miss this, loved ones. Listen, Herod had a choice. He had a choice in this, and so do you and I. Herod wasn't just given one strike and he was out. That's not what happened here in this story. Yes, in this moment, this is the very moment where he is struck dead, but you have to see this. Herod's life was a life pattern of living for the glory of self. He did not live for the glory of God. His whole objective was to gain the favor of the Jews. He wanted them to worship him. He wanted them to praise him. That's how he lived his life. And we see the evidence of that in that he set himself against God, right? Have you read James? He says, and Peter reaffirms this, right? Quoting Proverbs chapter three, that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here is the picture of a man who has lived a life of pride. He wants the glory of men. He wants the accolades of men. He wants the praises of men. And he's done that by assaulting the church of Jesus Christ, by resisting the church of Jesus Christ, and by killing those who are leading the church of Jesus Christ. But he had a choice, even in this moment, as Josephus makes clear and as Luke makes clear, he did not in that moment give glory to God. Just think about that. The praise is coming in. Oh, he hears the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man, and internally he's processing this, and he has the option to say, that's not true. I am no God, I am a mere man. But instead, he receives what is not his. He does not turn and deflect that glory to God. And this, what we see here, is just the final straw that broke the camel's back. And it is a powerful statement that God is making. He will, listen, this is the, the, the scary reality of the Bible. There are times where God will strike down his enemies, where he has given them chance after chance after chance. And I don't, I don't know for sure how many chances you know, Herod had to, to fall on his face before God, to repent of his sins, to give glory to God, but he certainly knew the truth of Jesus Christ. He certainly knew the message that the church was, was sharing across the, the world at the time. Romans Chapter one makes it clear that there becomes a point where God gives us over to our sin and, and that greatest sin of all is the sin of idolatry. All of that, you read Romans one, everything begins to unravel and it begins with the sin of idolatry where man begins to worship not the creator but the created things. 
And, and this is the heart, listen, idolatry is the heart of all human sin, where we try to usurp God's rule in our life. You know, we've sung so many songs this morning about God ruling and reigning, and, and you need to see this in your life as a Christian, and if you're an unbeliever, you need to see this too. But the heart of rebellion against God is idolatry. It is the attempt to kick God off his throne, to take him from where he rightly belongs as the ruler and the king and you in your rightful place of submission. I mean, just think about it. This was the very sin in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? I mean, they were tempted. You can be just like him. That's what he's worried about. You can be God like him. The appeal to that is so strong in our flesh. We love, we love to be God. We love to be the one in charge. We love to be the one who's controlling everything. We love to be the one who's receiving the praise. We love in our hearts to kick God off his throne. And God says, I won't compete with that. I won't compete with you. And sometimes you get to the place where God has been working and chiseling and trying to come after you and pursue you. And Romans 1 tells us sometimes God gives us over and we spiral out of control. And just like Herod was struck down, so too are many who resist and rebel against God. We have a tendency to take praise for ourselves when it should go to God. We begin to believe the lie that we really are something special, right? That's what our flesh loves, that we really are responsible for our own success and accomplishments and abilities. And man, I, I am pretty good. And, and you know, this is what, the, what we refer to as secular humanism, that man exists for man and man exists for the glory of man. And you live for self. That is the worldview that has shaped our culture, And in our hearts as Christians, we struggle with this too. You know, we know glory belongs to God, but when people are praising us and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're just, you know, the accolades are pouring in, we're like, oh, stop, please, please stop. And we must learn to give glory to God. We have, listen, church, we have no talent or ability, no success or accomplishment that God has not made possible, amen? We have nothing to boast in but the grace of God. No person can stand against him. That is the message that is being driven home in the death of this man. No one can stand against him. He will not give his glory to another. In fact, listen to what the apostle says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Such a familiar verse, and don't miss the point of this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. I mean, you have to see that in these verses here, listen, no human being is exempt from these verses. Do you realize that? Every human being, past, present, and future is subject to this verse. They're in this verse. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, whether that's here or whether that's in the future when you stand before him. No one is exempt from this. But listen, church, listen. This statement here that is being made in Philippians 2 is not a statement, right, that every tongue will confess and every... That's not a statement of devotion. That's a statement of identity. That is a declaration of who God is and who we are. It is a statement saying, God, you are God and I am not. God, you rule. God, you reign. God, you are king of kings and lord of lords. And I am a humble servant of the most high God. It's a statement of identity. 
And God calls every human being, listen, here and now, to give glory to God by bowing their knee now, by confessing with their tongue now. And the time to get right with God is not when you're standing before God. It's impossible. You can't. It doesn't happen that way. The time is now. So if you're holding out and you're waiting for this day thinking that because you said it in his presence that somehow you'll be exempt from not doing it here and now, you're fooling yourself. I just plead with you, please, if, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, now is the time. Now is the time to turn from your sin. Don't be like Herod. You choose this day. You bow the knee this day. You place your faith in Jesus Christ, Son of God, the one who came, who lived, who died for you in your place, the one who rose victorious over the grave. And you see the power of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't be like Herod, don't suffer his fate, struck down, eaten by worms. Listen, every person who finds himself rebelling against God, even to the point of standing before him in this final day, having rebelled against him in this life, will suffer a greater fate than Herod did, earthly speaking. They will suffer by being sent to the place that Scripture says where the worm never dies. But church, this is encouraging for us. Though we have deep pain and sorrow in our hearts for those who resist the word of God and resist the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to see this. This is intended to give us great confidence. There is no person who can stand against us. Our God is stronger. He will prevail. No one can stand against us. And thirdly and finally, listen to this. Because our God is stronger, no power can stop us. No power can stop us. The primary reason that this story of Herod's death is included is not to teach us that we should not steal glory from God. That's not the primary purpose of this passage. It is instead to set up the contrast of power we see in these final verses. Look at verse 24 and 25 and circle this first word, but. Everything is leading up to this point but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Don't miss the significance of what's taking place here. Rather than being prevented, rather than God's power being minimized, what we see here is that instead, the word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it continues to increase, it continues to flourish, it is multiplied. We don't see a a hindrance to the gospel, we see an advancement to the gospel. God is making a statement. You see, the one who tried to put an end to the church finds himself dead, while the church finds themselves dead thriving. John Stott says it like this. He says, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he himself is struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. That's our hope right there. The word of God has power. It has power to save because it has the very power of God. Herod dies and the gospel lives. The church prevails because the power of God is greater than any earthly power, than any spiritual power that comes against it. 
And by the way, it's always been like this. No power can stop our God. From beginning to end, the Bible is the testimony that our God is stronger. Our God is greater. Our God's plan will succeed. The gospel will go forth. The only question for us is this, will we go? Will we go? Will we get out and do what God has called us to do with greater courage and confidence in his power that is at work within and through us? Will we take up that mantle? Now, we believe God is sovereign. We believe he's calling us to go, but that does not alleviate our responsibility. Too many Christians are willing to sit back and say, yeah, I celebrate that truth that God is going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. Now, I'm going to kick my feet up and not participate in what he's doing, and that is not the way the Christian life is supposed to be lived. Hey, I, was, I was reading the book of Esther recently, and, and you know that really familiar passage in Esther? You know, you know the one I'm talking about, right? For such a time as this, that's like the most quoted passage in maybe, I don't know, all the Old Testament, certainly in the book of Esther. But do you know what comes right before that? It's fascinating. We love to focus in on it for such a time as this, and I was struck by this fact. Right before that, and I'll kind of paraphrase it for you, God says, or excuse me, Mordecai says to Esther, he says, look, you can be used by God, but it doesn't matter. God will raise somebody else up if he's not going to use you. It's not amazing. Just think about that for a second. God will accomplish his plan. God will accomplish his plan to save his people. And saving his people, he's going to bring about his Messiah. And if you're not going to be the one he uses, that's okay. He'll raise somebody else up. I mean, God, is, God is not dependent upon you. Isn't that good news? I mean, God's not sitting here going, oh, oh no, they're, they're not going to participate. What am I going to do? God will use somebody. But the awesome thing in that passage is this. Here is the opportunity presented to this woman, Esther. Right? God can use you or he can use somebody else. It's your choice. Right? But for such a time as this, maybe God has prepared you this very moment, at this time, in this country, for this purpose. To be a light to the nations. And do you, don't you believe that, church? That's the only reason we exist. Because God has called us for this purpose. Now, not to sit back and be complacent and apathetic about our faith. Not to be you know, bitter and holding on to past hurts and unwilling to move forward in our faith. And not to be trifling with foolish sins any longer. He set us free so that we can go and tell the nations. There's a God who saves. There's a God who's stronger. And that's what God is calling us to. Will we be willing to go? Will we get out? And, and the hope and the confidence and the courage that we have is rooted in this, isn't it? That God has already displayed his power in the greatest way of all, in the cross of Jesus Christ. We've already seen God's power conquering in the greatest way possible. The power of sin is broken. Death is defeated. Satan has been disarmed. His ultimate destruction is coming. And the good news for us Christians is this. Look, we look at the cross and we see victory in Jesus Christ. Sins forgiven. Life eternal found only by faith in him. But God in his grace has given us the end of the story, hasn't he? God's actually told us how this whole thing is going to end. And the picture we have is so staggering. It is such a complete and total victory. It is intended by God to stir us up, to press us out. Listen to what John wrote in Revelation 19. Just listen. He says this, after this, this is talking about the final battle. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that you? Are you among the blessed this morning who has been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? I love this passage of scripture. This sets my heart, listen, on fire for Jesus Christ. In the end, our God returns in victory. And don't miss this. The multitude of people coming back. Who's that? That's us. We come back in victory with our Savior. In the end, we sit with our King in his kingdom and we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen, church, that is a victory celebration. That is a victory celebration. It's all over. All of the pain, all of the persecution, all of the perseverance, it is finished. We win. The church wins. God wins. Celebrating the Lord's table is a powerful reminder that there is victory at the cross, but that victory points forward to the day he returns to reclaim what is his. And what a sweet opportunity for us to celebrate. The marriage supper of the Lamb, listen, that is fulfilled. The communion, excuse me, is fulfilled in the marriage supper of the Lamb. What we celebrate here today together points us forward to the greatest day the earth will ever know. The King is coming, and we will come with Him, and we will celebrate the strength, the honor, the glory, and the power of our God.